welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast is more 90s than Scatman John. Ski, ba 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 Ski, ba 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 what the hell was he on about with that song, eh? <laughs> My name's Ash Rose, back once again this week for your double dose of Alive and Kicking action as we look back at Euro 96 and the brilliant summer that was 1996. Last night, we looked back at the group stages and saw the early build-up to the tournament with the dentist chair and all the naughty antics the England team got up to and looked at the squad as well. If it was the right squad, the wrong squad, and what Terry Mendel's picked, we did the great stuff last night. So if you haven't listened to that, then stop listening now. Go back, download the first episode, get your first double dose of Euro 96 action with the guys last night so you can kind of get the full picture of that tournament 20 years ago. Yes, 20 years it's celebrating this year. Last night we had on some great guests. Uh, we had Roger Domaghetti, um, brilliant author of a book uh, about football in the media. Uh, Michael Gibbons, who literally wrote the book on Euro 96, a, a title called When Football Came Home. Uh, I'll put both those links on Twitter actually to their books. They're fantastic reads. Great back, great, sorry, great fun looking back uh, with those. And Richard Buxton, who will again be joining us tonight as we look at the second half of Euro 96. And it's just, again, like I said before yesterday's show, I mean, it's such a summer that we all hold in such high regard, isn't it? So much happened surrounding the football, the music, the TV, all the collections that went around it. It was just felt like the best summer ever, 1996. And that's central to that was the tournament that was held on home ground. And of course, Three Lions that was rocketing through the chance when the Fuji let it be number one. And, and it was great to speak to Angus Longerland yesterday on yesterday's show, better known as Stato. Great to get that fantasy football look back at Euro 96. He was so closely linked, of course, with David Baddiel and Frank Skinner and Three Lions. Um, and that show in the summer that really was at the height of its popularity and the song with the lightning seeds was good to get his thoughts. And, and yeah, I think we all agree that it's time to bring back that fantasy football league. I know Sky do their own sort of modern version but it's not quite the same as i know the laddish culture is slightly different in 2016 but what a show that was and it was great to to hear his memories as well uh, before we meet tonight's guest though i just want to say going forward forward with ak 90s we are taking a break over the summer um so officially you will, will, probably won't be here for us keep an eye on twitter uh, there might be a couple of one-offs we do but Keep on Twitter because we're, every day we're tweeting stuff about 1990s football. We're not going away. We're still there for you. If you need your 90s football fix, we, we're always there tr- tweeting the stuff, especially this week as well. What with it, you being Euro 96 and probably throughout the Euros, there'll be some Euro-centred stuff on the Twitter feed. So keep eye for that. And then next season, we'll see where we are. So it gives me this point, really, basically to thank everyone. I mean, it's been a labour of love, um, this podcast, since we started in August. And I think we've had some fantastic shows, fantastic memories from everyone some fantastic guests on the phone as well we've been lucky enough to speak to a footballer every week on this show from from that era or somebody at least involved in the football in the 90s like angus last night um, we have some great guests on the phone uh, to, it's hard even to pick out a couple because they've all been brilliant but mark crossley telling his stories about matt letitiae uh paul walsh not liking Giorgio uh, kinkladzi that was a revelation we weren't expecting but everyone in their own right has been brilliant roy evans was great mickey quinn was great and it was great to hear from all these guys and it's been a pleasure speaking to them and it's been a pleasure meeting new people on the pod i've met some great people who've been guests on the show um through this and it's been really good sharing their memories of the decade and getting to know them as well so thank you to everyone who's been on the show and who's been involved and of course to to west 12 media as well for helping us put it on the guys there david fraser and richard fraser you've been immensely helpful in putting the show together from making it into a book into a podcast and we'll see where we are next season but for the moment officially we are taking a break but just 
keep an eye on the Twitter feed because we won't go away forever. And, and of course, our final thank you goes to you lot for just making it possible and, and listening to the show, all your comments that you put on Twitter on facebook and on itunes it's been a pleasure to share those memories with you again we've met some great people through it so thank you for listening subscribing downloading and tweeting us it's been an actual pleasure i know this sounds like an oscar speech but i don't normally get the the opportunity to say this uh during the intro so this is just a a, a thank you from me because it means a lot to us here at ak90s and, and do check out the book as well cheap plug um because everything we've talked about on the show and more is in there and we've got a few more things that we haven't used for the podcast There's a couple of interviews we haven't done we're like with the class of 92 we spoke to chris casper um so they will be used at some point so keep an eye on twitter and on itunes for that talking of that you can of course keep in touch with us on twitter at ak90s and on facebook um especially this week please send in some euro 96 merchandise um i'd love to see something that i've never seen before we've got some bits and bobs in the office with the corinthian figures the little cars goliath the teddy bear which we'll talk about in a bit um, but anything i haven't seen tickets programs or even just some memories of the tournament of your own some stories i told my story last night uh, of what happened at welling high street after the spain game and i've got one as well after the germany game that i'll share with the lads uh, in a bit so yeah keep in touch ak 90s and again as always if you want to subscribe go on itunes and if you're feeling very happy and nostalgic about Euro 96 why not leave us a little review on iTunes and a five star rating because it's all about the ratings and it'd be great for us to end on an absolute high for for the summer uh, on a big star rating on iTunes and some nice comments from yourselves but let's get on and to meet tonight's guest then Hello, we are back once again for our second part. So let's meet our guests for our second part of our Euro 96 extravaganza. And back once again from our first part is our freelance football writer across Merseyside, Richard Buxton. How are you doing, Richard? Very good, thank you, Good to have you back on. And then discussing knockout stage, we've got two new faces, two new voices, sorry, to give us some new memories of what a fantastic tournament it was. Firstly, our we call him our football encyclopedia, Kent Teacher of the Year, Mr. Rob Gallagher. How are you doing? Good evening, Ash. Good to hear from you, buddy. Um, we'll talk to you a bit more in a bit. And lastly, uh, from Media73, our Wolves fan, Graham Large. How you doing, Graham? Very well, thanks, Ash. Good stuff. Right, well, let's just get stuck into it. Well, before we do, we've got our uh, football CVs that we'll do with the two new guys. I asked this question last night to Richard. So let's throw it out to Graham, first of all. Um, your favourite sort of moment of Euro 96? Um, I actually went to group games. Ah. And uh, I, I've got to say... I've got to say, it's actually been a spectator during the tournament. It's probably my favourite moment, per se. Uh, I went to... They were the most glamorous of games. Well, one ended up actually being the final, but it was a group game that I went to of uh, Germany versus Czech Republic, which Germany... Today, pre- 8th of June, that wasn't it? No, so yeah, June, yeah. Germany pretty much slept-walked to a 2-0 to a win during that game. Mm. But it was interesting to just see the Czechs just get better and better throughout that tournament because based on that first game, I thought they'd be they'd be out of the group with no points considering the fact that they've got Italy and, uh, and Russia in the group as well. But uh, and the, the other match I went to was Switzerland versus Holland at Villa Park. Oh, okay. And I was told by everyone, you're going to get such a footballing treat to see Holland in the flesh and see how the beautiful games really played. And then if you have a look at Dennis Bergkamp's goal during that game, it was the most route one goal you'll probably ever see. Van der Sar goal kick over top of the defender. Bergkamp's on the end of it. Keeper parries the first shot, second shot slotted past him. So, a beautiful game, eh? A very un like goal. Yeah, indeed. But aside from that, I'd say, really, as a football fan, the moment from that was probably 
Oliver Bierhoff scoring the first ever golden goal in yeah. a major tournament just because of the fact that gave us a bit of a glimpse into the future. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a bit. And your favourite player from the tournament, if you could pick one? Well, from the tournament, not so much his career afterwards, but it's got to be Carol Pabalski. <laughs> I mean, that, that, just that goal he scored yeah, where he beat pretty much every player on the... Uh, it's against Portugal, wasn't it? He yeah. beat pretty much every Portuguese player on the pitch before, before uh, smacking the ball in. And it was... It was just one of those moments where you, you, you thought this tournament had unearthed a real world-class talent and uh, wasn't quite the case, unfortunately. Yeah, the old Toto Scalacci effect. Rob, uh, I know that you're a big fan of the England-Holland group game, which we talked about last night. Would that be your favourite moment of Euro 96? It's definitely up there, Ash. I think, though, really, um, for me, just the whole of Euro 96, I can't actually pick one moment. I mean, yeah. it just absolutely epitomised a, a culture... You know, the football lads, music, yeah. everything that was going on at that time. And, you know, kids, if you're listening, I'm sorry, give up football, go and take on knitting or something like that, because football will never be as good as it was that summer. You know, people were taking a real interest in what was going on at the time. You know, that season you had, uh, you know, Keegan's implosion and, you know, really people taking a real interest in what was going on in football. And the country just come as one. People who wouldn't usually be interested in football were just there and they were soaking it up. And the atmosphere on the streets, you mentioned in the first pod about being in Welling, you know, yeah. which I know of, and, you know, people coming together who wouldn't usually come together. They did. And we don't have that now. It is. It was a fantastic time to be a football supporter. It was a fantastic time to be an England supporter, you know. And unfortunately... I don't think this summer's going to live up to Euro 96. No, I don't think anything ever will. It was such a special time. It was so, as I said yesterday, it was so hard to describe to people who didn't, of a certain age, live through that summer why it was so special. It was real. It wasn't just the football. It was, as you say, the culture of everything at the time. Britpop, Cool Britannia, the Spice Girls. It kind of all rolled into one, didn't it? It's to one fantastic summer. Definitely. It was, it was something special. And Well, if you could pick out one player then, other than Carol Paborski, who, who would you pick out as your player of the, of the tournament? Pavulsi's a great shout. I would probably, my heart says Shearer, yeah. but my head says Sammer. Yeah, who got the actual, play, the official player of the tournament, didn't he? What that, a player. Yeah. What a player. I think he's all, no one ever thinks of him as well when they do these sort of top teams and things. He was, you know, a, sta- a staple hole for Germany and Bayern and Dortmund. And I think he's still involved at Dor- uh, Bayern Munich as well. A fantastic defender. He's director of football there or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, so yeah, no, good shout. Uh, Richard, we did your CV yesterday. Um, but I was going to ask you, we didn't really talk about this last night. The merchandise and the collections around Euro 96, did you get involved in those at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was kind of uh, involved that um, obsession in my adult life, much <laughs> to my missus' uh, frustrations. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was a great time to be a football fan. And, you know, we, we covered a lot of it on the uh, on the Toys podcast, but I think you put it on Twitter before about the virtual replays, the virtual yeah. videos that yeah. um, Kells used to do. Um, I actually managed to get my hands on a full set because I, I only had... Bits and bobs, they never had the, the complete collection. But, um, I mean, when you look back now and you see what kids get nowadays for toys and what we had to amuse ourselves with, there was some really, really substandard products. But, you know, I mean, that's probably what adds to the to the attraction and the fascination. I think I had, um, I don't know if you remember the official Euro 96 kit that they brought out with the, the logo plastered down the, yeah. um, the, I think it's down the right-hand side of your, yeah. of your torso. Um, I had one of them, and I had the uh, the white um, baseball cap, and then obviously collected bits Rob's here and there, and and more on the on the clothing side of things. I had the uh, the white and turquoise England kit, so I was firmly ingrained in the whole 
the whole notion of the hype around your ninety six and, and grabbing everything I could um at the time of the tournament and into later life, I should say. Yeah, that I've got completely forgot about the official kit. If anyone's got a picture of that of them in their loft or in their garage or anything, put it on Twitter, it'd be great to see that. But it's funny you mentioned getting the kit. I think the last full kit I ever bought, and I'm talking literally full kit, sort of socks, shorts and shirt, was that England goalkeepers top from Euro ninety six, <laughs> which is obviously in later days, research with the refreshers kit, it was terrible, horrible, but I loved it. I was a proper full kit, you know what, um, when when that came out, and I absolutely I, loved that. I had the uh, I had the exact same goalkeeper shirt, and I had the fruit pastels one, which followed it as well. <laughs> great kits, <laughs> great kits. Um, before we move into the knockout stage, we're going to go to the guest straight of all because he kind of relevant to the group stages more than the knockout stages, which is unfortunate for Scotland fans, but he did play a massive part. Euro 96, not to what he'd probably want to remember, but he's very, uh, I would say, bullish about the moment. It's a former Blackburn title winner as well, uh, Scotland defender who Gaza made uh, a little bit of fool of, and he's very man enough to stand up and say he did. Um, here's me speaking to Colin Hendry earlier today. Colin Hendry, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Good to be finally. Yes, it's good to, to speak to you. We'll, we'll talk Euro 96 in a minute. As that's what we'll talk about tonight. But we can't talk to you on a 90s podcast without mentioning Blackburn and that epic win uh, in 1995. Uh, I mean, it's probably the highlight of your career winning the Premier League with Blackburn. Well, yeah, it's difficult to to um, to gauge which, you know, uh, to captain your country in the World Cup final, the opening game in the World Cup final, to win the treble with Rangers and win it. The league at Parkhead is was incredible, you know, and obviously to win the Premiership in, in England now, where it's been it's been pretty dominant by uh, dominated by four or five clubs, isn't it? Really, you know, Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, and and you know, just recently Leicester's managed to to creep in there, and, it's, and it's, that that is a lovely story because. You know, and it, it wasn't wasn't totally similar to ourselves because we'd we'd done well the two years previous as well as before we won before we won the Premiership. Um, Leicester this year just came out of nowhere. You know, mm. I mean, the year before they were just lucky to stay in the league. So it's a great story, and it's it's it does help everybody, and it makes everybody really quite quite happy. Apart from the, if you're a supporter of Man City, Man United, Liverpool, uh, Man United, or um, Chelsea, you know, and, and these teams, Arsenal, because they are the teams that have dominated, you know, over the over the, the twenty years effectively. Um, and it's a great it's a great story. But we, you know, we we deserved it at the time. You know, we we done we gone from strength to strength with a good body of players, with a with a good team work ethic, um, and we sustained that for 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 a few seasons. We only managed to win the league the once, but we were we were reasonably close and up there for most of the time um, and the hardest part of course is, is, as any manager would say is, that, is to sustain winning that title year in year out and Manchester United were, they, they, they pioneered that for long enough you know and, and did ever so well because it was it's, it's, it's hell of a feat hell of a feat to win it once but to sustain and, and, to, and, and to retain the title is, is just something else you know but um no, I've, I had I had great great period, great time. I would never have changed my career for anything, and you know it's it's difficult to differentiate between 
winning the league at Blackburn, winning the treble with Rangers and, and then captain your country as well as. Mm. Let's talk about your country. Um, we're talking Euro 96 this week as it's been 20 years yep. since that tournament. Yeah. Going into the tournament and as with Scotland, what kind of feeling was in the squad? You know, you had a difficult group, but did you have a feeling that you you could kick on in that tournament? Yeah, I mean, we, we, were, we were full of beans and, you know, we, we knew that we, had, we were going to have to carry a little bit of luck uh, at some point in in um, in the three games, I mean the game we won was the game that we fancied ourselves in anyway, um, and the game that we thought we might have got a draw and we lost to England, the, the game we thought we'd get beaten, we, we drew with, with Holland. Um, but the atmosphere, the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. I mean I can remember on the coach driving up to Villa Park uh, for the Holland game, which we do nil nil. And the, the you know the the, the orange the Holland and you know the, the tartan and the, and the kilts and the from the tartan army was just something else. It was it's probably one of the best atmospheres I've ever ever played in. Um, okay. People have asked people have asked me that before, but and it was it wasn't a dreary nil nil either. I mean it was pretty much end to end towards the the last fifteen twenty minutes of the game, um, and we started off well. You know, we did start off well against Holland, and um, it was a good, it was a good, good platform to to go into the England game on. Mm. We have to talk about the England game. Um, yep. It was obviously a massive rivalry, massive derby, and it all kind of uh-huh. spun on that sixty seconds in the second half, didn't it? From McAllister's miss, and then of course to Gaza's yeah, goal, which we hate to remind Gaza, you of. Yeah, but it's not a problem for me. I mean, I've I've said this long enough, and, and people, and it's been pretty much out there and. Up front all week this week because of the Euros and it's and it's and it's great. I mean, it's it's sad at times how Paul has you know parts of his life and you know I've not had any I've not had my own troubles to seek, but certainly it's taken. I've always said it's listen. It's taken England's arguably arguably best ever footballer to do that to me. Mm-hmm. So if if it was somebody else, you know, I'd I'd go you know yeah. But no, it's actually taken a world-class player of of his generation to do that to me. So I, I put my hand up and say, "Listen, hey, well played, get on with it." Um, and then I've, I've got to I've got to I've got to come back with the fact that you know, hey, I had a great career as well, and I would never change my career. Um, and I'm still playing just yet. You know, I'm still playing in, in charity games, a lot of different charities. Um, I'm fighting for this moment in time, so I don't very much be able to do it now. <laughs> but, um, but certainly, uh, it was it was a great goal. You know, it's mm. one of the goals that a lot of people relate to uh, England and how how nearly they they made it in in Euro '96. But yeah, I mean, Yuri Geller's taken credit for the penalty, of course, um, yeah. and Gaza's going to take credit for his for his excellent goal. But uh, yeah, but we thought we thought. We thought that if we got the penalty and we scored, then it could have been. It would have probably been another draw, which we would have been happy with, because mm-hmm. then that would have taken us into the Switzerland game, which we won. And you know, you know, the way England uh, destroyed Holland, the a point against England would have been enough for us to go through with England. But um, hey ho, as I say, you know, it was, it was as close as we came, I think, for a, for a long time as to qualifying for the next stages of a tournament and. And of course, since then we've only qualified for the World Cup, which was in '98. So it's been a it's been a a dreary t- period of time really for Scotland qualifying for competitions. Mm. I was going to ask you, do you think that that group in '96 and and then that went on to '98 as well was probably 
one of the, the kind of the best Scotland t- team and squad we've seen for quite some time, and they've struggled to to replicate those sort of talent, the likes of McCoy, and McAllister, and yourself. It, it's not really happened, has it? No, it's not. And I think I got asked this question nearly six, eight months ago about why Scotland haven't qualified, and just my opinion. Purely in something my opinion, I just feel that we don't have enough players playing at the very top of the top of the gate at top of the game. Mm. And, and by that I mean we did have John Collins who was playing. He might have been playing at Monaco at the time in the Champions League and at the top of the league in France. Gary McAllister at the top of the Premiership in in, in, in England. I was playing at the top of the Premiership in England. There was Kevin Gallagher. I was Billy McKinley. We had we had a lot of players playing. Uh, Ali, uh, Ali McCoy, Gordon Jury, these lads were playing for Rangers in the Champions League. They were playing, they were winning leagues year in, year out up there in Scotland, So and the Celtic players as well. As. So we were all virtually playing at the very height of, of the top of the game that you could actually get to. You know, OK, we weren't playing in Spain or Italy, but we were all playing at the top, like the top end in the Premiership in England, and that's what we don't have now. We just don't have... Players on a regular basis playing in the top six. You know, we don't have we don't have players that are challenging for the league um, year in year out. That just doesn't happen. I just think that's a, that makes a difference in relation to what caliber or quality of team we can get out and use in in, in competition when when we're trying to achieve a qualification in Euros or in, in, the, in the World Cup. Mm. Now it's a, it's a good point. You don't have the the caliber of that squad. And finally, before we let you go, just on your own I6, what is your abiding memory of the tournament in that summer? Because it's seen as such a nostalgic summer in uh, of '96. Mm. What what is your big take from from that summer? Well, I it was the opening game against Holland where we were up against such Dutch greats, you know, um, and we managed to hold them to nil nil, and we did have a chance or two, um, but you know, I think we, when we start off in a tournament, not to be beat, not to get beaten. It was important because when we went and played against Brazil in the opening game in the World Cup in '98, we lost to Brazil, and it was a disappointment because of the way we lost actually more than anything. But um, certainly, certainly in the Holland game. But listen, it was great to play at Wembley. It was great to be part of that spectacle. We were we were unlucky. We won. We weren't outplayed. You know, we weren't overplayed or anything like that. You did have Gaza's little bit of magic. Um, we did miss a penalty, and then we we'll go and win our last game against Switzerland. So. You know, it was maybe if we'd done it a couple, two or three times on the bounce, we might have gone a little bit further. But certainly, um, the, the, the Holland game, but the whole spectacle of playing in Euro '96 was just magnificent. It was just great, great to be part of it, really. Yeah, and then wearing that beautiful kit as well, one of the best kits of the tournament, I thought. The yeah, kit. <laughs> yeah, Brilliant. it was. It was. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Colin. Great to speak to you. All the best. Take Thanks care. a lot. Cheers. Bye bye. Cheers. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Great stuff there from Colin there. And I think, you know, he he, he stood up tall and said that he wanted to, you know, he, he used to blame to Gazers, although maybe a little bit bitter saying uh, about he couldn't do it again today. But um, fair play to Colin for, for talking about it. So let's get stuck in to the knockout stages and start with the 22nd of June, 1996, an afternoon where Spain and England clashed at Wembley. Now, when you look back on this, we'll, we'll talk about obviously the big memorable moments of it. Um, but Rob, I don't think England played that well, did they? No, I don't think they did, mate. I think that basically, um, you know, harking back to the group games a little bit, after the disappointment of the Switzerland game, um, the second half against Scotland was starting to build up, but the euphoria of the Dutch game, 
I basically think that we thought we was going to walk into this one and, and they were going to roll over. And that simply wasn't the case. And really, I think Spain were quite unlucky not to go through legitimately. You know, to, for it to get as far as penalties um, was doing them a disservice because they were playing some cracking football at the time. And, you know, England just weren't at the races that day. No, they weren't. And there was obviously the game ending nil nil, Richard. And there was that moment, that header went in in the back of the net, team's net, which I think was from Nadal, if I remember rightly. And I think all out, we sort of took a breath in and thought that was it. But Spain kind of deserved that goal, didn't they? They did, yeah. And I think it was, we were at that stage. I mean, I actually watched the highlights back before. And um, I think Rob was right. I think there was a degree of arrogance about England before, after hitting home for four, you thought, we're going to go and walk this one. But, you know, I mean, they're not quite as, you know, quotable and as memorable as the, the current Spain team and the players from Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid. But, you know, the players of that generation were mainstays for those respective clubs. And um, I think England got off very lightly, especially, I don't know if you remember, um, midway through the first half, David Seaman coming out uh, of his area for a one-on-one. I think someone broke clear. He came David out. X. What was that? He saved it with his legs, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. And and then, fortunately, I think it was Adams got back in time um, to avert the danger. But it was the sort of thing that if if, if, it, if it breaks for you, especially for, for the player, then, and he can just roll it into the net because it's Siemens in no man's land. It's not even his own area. So I think we probably were very lucky to get through that game just getting through scores, I think. Yeah, it was, a, like you say, there weren't, it wasn't a Spanish team that, rivals the, the scene we've seen modern day but it had some big names in it like Zuzu Buretta and Nadal and Hierro but uh, it went down to penalties um, Graham at that point you know we had all, all of us started thinking about Tally 90 and what happened there did you as well were you nervous for the penalty shootout before it began I was up until Herrero hit the crossbar then <laughs> I thought, we might we might have a chance here but I looked at the um, looked at the penalty takers that appeared to step forward and it was like when when I saw the likes of Shearer and David Platt first and foremost, I thought, well, there's two goals for a given. And then um, it just seemed, I don't know, we just seemed so much more confident from the spot, apart from that one, uh, I, can't, I can't remember who the Spanish player was that uh, deceived Seaman with his run-up. But uh, I think it was their second penalty. Uh, and more, wasn't it, I think, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, and um, apart from apart from that one... The Spanish didn't look too confident from the spot, and I think that was the big difference. We we obviously had proven penalty takers um, in in Shearer, Platt, uh, Pierce, and, uh, and Gascoigne, who who were more than capable of scoring goals. And I think I think confidence was the difference in that shootout. Yeah, and you mentioned Stuart Pearce, and it's a moment all England fans love to talk about. It's a moment that's been replicated on T-shirts and images ever since. That Pierce penalty, I think we all were with him taking that penalty, you know, burying the ghosts of Italian anti Rob. And what a moment. I mean, even I, I can still see myself getting so excited and feeling so happy for Stuart Pierce at that point. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, he referenced in a recent documentary that I think the crowd and the, the nation were more nervous than he was walking up to take it. But if there was ever a player in a game that you wanted to score, it was him at that moment. And you know, for those of you that are, uh, you know, painting fans, Edvard Munch's the scream, the contortions of Pierce's face when he <laughs> stuck that penalty away was exactly the same. And just the relief. I mean, you could hear it audibly coming out of the telly from Wembley and the country just, you know, there was a massive exhalation of jubilation because Pierce, the man that had sort of let us down for want of a better phrase at 90, had actually done it. And just, you know, 
it was something that everyone could celebrate. Yeah, especially because a guy like Stuart Pearce never celebrated goals, did he? He was always the guy. I remember in the cup final at 91 where he scored that free kick, he just kind of turned back, kind of an arm in the air, went, let's get on with it, lads. And it was, it was so nice to see uh, for Stuart Pearce. And then Gascoigne scored before Seaman save Richard, and, and England were through. Yeah, and I think, just going back to the Pearce penalty, it's actually quite telling that it's one of the few moments from Euro 96 that the FA have actually immortalised on the corridors of Wembley. Um, when I was down there recently, they had um, there's three striking images on the walls. One of them's of um, Gazza's goal, one's of Seaman's penalty save, and the other is of Pierce going absolutely mental. Um, and I think that was the perfect kind of build up to to what followed. Great penalty from Gascoigne again, and then Seaman. Um, you would you wouldn't have bet against David Seaman, would you? In the form he was in, he was with Arsenal, and you know they were starting to look almost close to being this all-conquering machine that Arsenal men could took over. So you would never have bet against Seaman. Um, it's interesting to know what happened to Miguel Angel Nadal because you don't really hear his name mentioned these days, do you? No, you don't. Apart from his son, is his son? Is Nadal's son the tennis player? Cousin or nephew? They're related in some yeah. way, isn't he? Just yeah. pulled out of Wimbledon, though. So, um, on that note, keep it nineties, keep it football. Um, so, let's just briefly look at the other quarterfinals. France, Netherlands went to penalties, and you know, the Netherlands have got a worse record than England at penalty shootout. And this was one of their uh, one of their early defeats as Clara Seedorf missed from the spot, and France scored all five penalties to go through. Uh, Germany uh, had a bit more to do against Croatia because Germany kind of sailed through the group stages. Um, they beat Croatia 2-1 thanks to Matis Sammer's win although Davos Suka who we talked about last night did score for the Croats fantastic player uh, the Czech Republic of course beat Portugal and we mentioned it briefly earlier on Graham that goal from Karol Boborski the scoop as it's, as it's known now um, never seen it done since but it's fair to say his career as we've mentioned earlier at Man United didn't pan out as well did it? It's the same as every Czech Republic player from that tournament though it's like I think the majority of the team that didn't already play in uh, in France or Germany all got big money moves abroad after that, after that tournament, based on the fact that they got to the final. Because there was the likes of Poborski and Berger coming over to play in uh, in, yeah. in, in England. Kuba uh, went to play in uh, for, for Deportivo. Uh, Nedved went to play for Lazio, and it was they they all ended up with big money moves off the back of this tournament. I don't think, apart from apart from arguably Nedved, any of them really set the world on light, uh, alight. Um, but it, it it was that, that moment was just astonishing. It's up there for me with the likes of. I mean, it, it, it was rivaled by Gascoigne's moments and pure brilliance that you spoke about in the first pod for me in terms of like a, a, a memory from an abiding memory from that tournament. But also, it's up there with the the other major tournament goals uh, like your Van Basten moments, uh, like Gordon Banks' save. There's something that you just picture whenever you think back. Yeah, a fantastic goal, Rob. Have you tried the scoop before? I have, and most of the balls are still up in the air waiting to come back down. Um, one thing I would like to mention, about, especially about the France-Netherlands game, is, um, and we'll come on to Southgate later, but when you've got a centre-half taking a penalty, have a look at Laurent Blanc's penalty mm. against the Netherlands. I mean, that is absolutely perfect. I mean, he stuck it right in the corner. Um, Van der Sar, no chance. Um, unfortunately, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later, we didn't have the same luck. You mentioned that, though, about the, the penalties as well, Rob. I mean... The story goes that Paul Ince was meant to be the, the sixth taker against uh, Spain instead of Gareth Southgate. Is that a story you've heard before as well, Richard? Yeah, I think Ince actually mentioned it on, on the recent documentary with uh, Alan Shearer. I think he actually said, you know, I think he was next after Southgate. It was, um, but as Rob says, you do wonder, 
you know, I mean, why is a defender taking a penalty ahead of, you know, um, a set-piece specialist and a midfielder? I think I, I always think it should be going from, from your front line back. I think it should always be your strikers, then your midfielders, then your defenders. And if push comes to shove and you have to do a pack Jennings, then your goalkeeper gets involved. But um, I, I think if Inch had done it, he'd have won the what-if. But, there's, I mean, there's a lot of moments around around that, isn't there? You look at Gaza, at Dan Anderson... What if they'd if they'd been on the receiving end and they'd actually met the cross, yeah. we would be talking about something different possibly. You know, what it's all different but but I think in theory you'd wonder why a defender was put forward over an experienced midfielder. Yeah. Well we started talking about it then. Let's talk about that semi final. I mean, I remember the build up to it and, and the newspapers going mental. I think they got in trouble for bringing up the war, if I remember rightly, one of the red tops. Um it was such a massive yeah, it was it the Daily Mirror? I think it was, yeah. You had Pierce, and I can't remember the German player they had, but they had the hats on and everything, didn't they? Um, but yeah, they got in trouble for that. And But it was such a massive, massive game. I think we were quite confident, but Graham, three minutes in, didn't expect that Alan Shearer goal, did you? Uh, no, absolutely not. I've got, to, uh, I've got to be honest there. It was uh, almost like the dream start. Mm. Just, just unfortunate that it uh, didn't last too long um, with the... Uh, the German striker, whose uh, surname I won't say in case my mother's listening, she thinks I'm being rude, but um, equalising shortly afterwards. But it, it, it was just they came, they came straight out of the blocks, really, and it was like they 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 they, they had a real purpose in order to try and get the early goal in the game. But um, it, it was just a shame that the, the rest of, the rest, particularly of normal time, wasn't quite the same as what the first sort of 20 25 minutes was in the game i mean the there the were there were chances at both ends but it just didn't seem to have that same sort of urgency i, I always think and i think rob i don't know if you think this as well if england had got a second in that game after she had scored i think we've been talking about a different game and a different outcome don't you absolutely um i think it rattled uh i think it rattled the germans i think what's also interesting is that you know, in Shearer's career, if you ask a, a 90s football fan, or you know, how does Alan Shearer celebrate his goals? Well, he sticks one arm up in the air and he runs away. If you look at his celebration mm. against the Germans and you look at his celebration against the Swiss, though, for a different reason, because, you know, he hadn't scored for such a long time. But against the Germans, he was well up for it. You know, it was such an important goal. He got us off to such a good start. Unfortunately, we slept at the back and... Um, that man's got got the equaliser. I'll say it. Stefan Kuntz, <laughs> as it was said. <laughs> as I remember that famous fancy football sketch uh, with John Motson as well. I remember that them saying, what do you think of the German team then, John? And then playing that word. Um, very well remembered at fancy football. There. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was one of those. That moment kind of deflated England a bit. And I think Graham's right. I think the game petered out until extra time. And then I think, oh, I mean, extra time was one of those. With the golden goal, England really, really went for it. And Richard, you mentioned it. A couple of minutes ago, that Gaza chance. I mean, it is inches from the post, isn't it? Yeah, and I think someone actually did a. Uh, I think they did an alternate reality um, TV advert. I don't know if you remember it a few years ago before a major England tournament, and he said, "What if um, Pierce had scored his penalty in Italian ninety? What if um, Gaza had met the, met the ball in the ninety six? And I think the last is probably more of a. Well, what would have happened? Because you do wonder, as you say, we came on the block at them, and I, I was generally when Shearer's fair minute going, and I thought we're going to have another four one here, we're going to really trounce them, and that seemed quite that, that kind of. I think probably there's a bit of a, 
a bit of a selfish motive there because I was told if it went to extra time, I wouldn't be able to watch it. So I had to, um, I was kind of agonising and hoping and willing them to kind of go on and go on better. But um, the extra time, I mean, I think Darren Anderson I mentioned before, he had the chance as well because he tried to um, jump in on the on the act, didn't he? A, a, a sort of um, my demons have been been under for twenty years. It's time to let them out and all this nonsense. But I don't think that, that the Anderson miss was as as fatal and as um, as costly as the Gaza one. I mean, you, you just look at Gaza's reaction as soon as he tried, as soon as the ball goes out of play, you can just see he just knows he's blowing it, and it's it's almost like Italian ice all over again for him. I think mm. he's, he's famously said, I think it was on one of his, his documentaries this week that ITV and BBC have done that he he thought the goalkeeper had it, and it was that kind of split second kind of hesitation that stopped that kind of boot yeah, yeah. getting on the end of it, which is. It could have gone so different. You mentioned that advert. I always remember that advert from, I think it was two years ago where they did that alternate reality and they talked to Euro 92 as well. And Andy, they made it Sir Andy Sinton, who was part of that England squad at the time. And that made me laugh being a QPR fan. And he's not awfully remembered by England fans, but obviously we still love him as, as QPR fans. But going back to, to Euro 96, um, it went to penalties then after those two agonising misses by Darren Anderton and Gaz, and not before another goal that was disallowed for um, Germany as well that, put our hearts in our mouths uh, we thought that was the golden goal and that was it but we're talking penalties and they don't get much better than the six German penalties that night do they Graham? No they don't and um, the the interesting thing that I I read shortly after that semi-final performance I think it must have been in the Sunday Times highbrow reading for an 11 year old at the time but um, they were discussing how the Germans had analysed Siemens' height and where he was likely to be able to actually reach in the net and they deliberately practised on focusing on, I think they said it was about 18-19% of the net which they considered unreachable, which hence why um, a lot of the uh, penalties were pitch perfect in terms of precision. So they, they were obviously well prepared for the penalty shootout, which I'm not sure England were quite as well prepared. It's it's the obviously the old adage that England... Uh, always fail in, uh, in in penalty shootouts. And I think they'd had their uh, moments of luck against um, against Spain in the quarters. Mm. And we mentioned Southgate earlier, Richard touched on it. But when he stepped up, Rob, I mean, I think all of us had that sort of sinking feeling. Nothing against Gareth. We'd never seen him take a penalty, not, a, not score of many goals either. There were people on the pitch we probably would have preferred. And it, it, just, it was just an inevitable, unfortunately, wasn't it? I think so. I mean, there was a couple of things that... Um unfortunately went again against him uh number one uh paul ince being a coward um, <laughs> uh number two and steve McManaman, uh, he was on the pitch <laughs> well yeah um yeah I, I do think though you know you look at that england team and it's something you in my opinion you can't do now you go down that role you've got seaman he's a captain southgate he is a captain yeah. adams is a captain pierce is a captain platt's a captain ince is a captain shearer's a captain and sherringham's a captain you know Really, and they one of those other players should have stepped up. In my opinion, it should have been Paul Ince, the governor, the governor, and self-proclaimed. Yeah. Um. And basically, he didn't. And you know, I don't care what he says. As an England supporter, he bottled it big time. Yeah. And we sent up Gareth Southgate, who's actually taken charge of it. And you know, and he's tried his best ultimately. I don't think Kopka smashing the ball against, against the crossbar the bar, yeah. and him running back having to get it has helped him at all. His body language is all wrong. He's never going to score that penalty in a primary school playground, let alone at an international stage. And uh, Gareth, 
It's sad, mate, but there you go. Yeah, he had a fantastic tournament as well. He and did. I always remember, uh, is it Barry? Yeah, it was Barry Davis, the great Barry Davis, who was commentating on the game, and his instant reaction to that, and then the, oh, no! And it was kind of felt by everyone at that moment, because he knew, even at that point, whoever was stepping up, the penalties had been so good that night, and it was, of course, Andres Moller, who scored the last penalty for Germany to send them to the final. And uh, ultimately, England were unlucky again on home soil. Uh, I mean, it was one of those games. Do you think, Richard, overall, England deserved it that night and were unlucky once again? Well, I don't know if, if they, they were unlucky. I just think it was... I think it, they could have prepared the game a, a little bit differently. I mean, you look back at the stats, I mean, Germany used all three of their subs. England's same players completed 120 minutes. Um, you know, there should have probably been an injection of fresh legs. You know, he could have thrown on Robbie Fowler. He's a, a Steve Stone. Steve Stone, yeah. Or, you know, two players who aren't alien to um, to taking a spot kick. Yeah. And I think Fowler's record was pretty good at the time. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Stones was, but I can imagine it was probably a lot better than um, than Southgate's. But it's interesting you mentioned about, about Coker kicking the ball off the crossbar. I wonder if there was a degree of psychology in that, because for him to do that and to bounce the ball off, he must have known that Southgate's got to go and collect it. And yeah. he's probably thought, yeah, we've got this one, bounce it off the crossbar. And it's almost it's almost like Bruce Grobelar level arrogance from Coker, I think. Um, I mean, I just think when you look at, and I think we go back to the documentary again, um, you look at what the defeat did to England, and it, it almost like turned the country feral overnight. You look at the um, the scene from Trafalgar Square that we're on, yeah. we're on the night. You watched the, um, I rewatched the, the news at ten reports, or I think it was news at midday or something like that. And it's just like you know, from jubilation to absolute anarchy in the space of. You know, two minutes within within Southgate missing that penalty and Muller scoring it. Um, it's just like it is just like going into from harm, harmony and and civilization to a post-republic society. So I think the mood that I know, of course, it was only a few idiots, but you know, a few idiots could make make a lot of headline news. But I think that was reflective of you know how how devastating it was. I think we believe we could go all the way, and I think we believe that. But we were going to beat the Germans, and this was our time. We'd finally won a penalty shootout after six years um, of heartache in, in Turin, and we thought we were going to go all the way. But you know, it wasn't going to be 1966 revisited, and you know, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I think that was probably reflected in the, the level of apathy towards yet the final itself. Yeah, and we're still waiting 20 years later as well, which is unbelievable as well as the song goes, but. It wasn't to be that night. The story I mentioned at the top of the podcast as well is that I watched that with a friend of mine at home and cheered on England and disappointed that we lost. We only to get home to his house to find these cat had been run over as well. So we were doubly disappointed that night. Not that I have a fit for cats, but it was it was bad for him. But the other semi-final was, of course, France and the Czech Republic again went to penalties. It was nil-nil. Um, another stellar penalty shootout as well that went all the way to Southern Delft until a guy called Pedros, um, which if you buy the new 442 magazine of someone who's been on the uh, podcast before, Ben Littleton, who's a penalty expert, um, wrote a brilliant feature about him and how that penalty kind of completely turned his career uh, for the worse, actually. He was meant to be one of France's new generation, part of the squad that would go to 98, but that penalty miss really ruined his career and he wasn't really never made the international scene again so unfortunately him but that led to as Graham mentioned at the top of the show the final which was a repeat of an early group game between the Czech Republic and Germany and uh, Rob did you have your Czech Republic shout out for this one? Unfortunately it was in the wash um, <laughs> I'll be honest with you I mean until doing the research for, for, for this podcast I didn't even realise there was a final so um, 
such you know as has been mentioned such was the apathy i think that england thought we we all thought we were going to do it um the Czechs, I think, fantastic to get there. As mentioned, Pabalski again in the final, fantastic. Um, what was interesting, I think um, Patrick Berger actually scored the goal. Yeah. Hadn't played in any of the other group stage games from the start. Coming off the bench, but started and obviously got the penalty. And you're thinking once they've done that, you know, maybe they're going to go on to, um, you know, pick up the trophy. I mean, big outsiders, but the Germans being Germans do what they do. And uh, I was reading something the other day, very interesting. Oliver Bierhoff wasn't even really going to go until um, Bertie Votes' wife said, uh, take Oliver Bierhoff with you. He will repay you. And obviously he did. Mystic Mrs. Votes. Definitely. That's I don't good. think she got a medal, but... No, she probably deserves one, though. But yeah, that you talk about the French guy, that that game completely made Olivier Bierhoff because he got his move to AC Milan after that as well with the two goals. One of them in in normal time and then, of course, the, the Fable golden goal. Uh, Graham, what do you remember of, of that final? I mean, obviously, it was different from the game that you saw. Yeah, very. Uh, the, Czechs are, the, the Czechs played a lot better in this game, I've got to say. Um, I, I, I look back on the highlights earlier today and I think um, the, the, the main thing that uh, stood out for me was how quick Poborski actually was at the time, particularly when he was brought down for the penalty because I think the German player... Took him out out of desperation because he knew he had no chance of stopping him. If that had been the, if if he hadn't have done that, he probably fancied his chances uh, more on the fifty-fifty of a penalty uh, than letting Poborski run through. Um, superb header from Beer off for the uh, for, for Germany's equaliser from from the free kick. It was a really really well taken header. Um, but then you go to the goal in uh, in golden goal and. We, we talked about how uh, how bad Southgate must have been feeling, but for Peter Cooper, that must have been gutting mm-hmm. to have the ball not only deflect into the palm into the palm of your hands, but to actually push it into the net as well. It, I, I can't imagine what that must feel in the final of that magnitude. Yeah. So it was Germany ultimately never back against the Germans who won the tournament. Richard, were they worthy winners of Euro '96? It depends if you look at it from from the knockout stage onward, or you look at it from the overall tournaments. I mean, if you look at previous major tournament winners in recent times, I mean, I'd say France '98. I think probably the host nations deserve to win it, and you know, you'd even look at, at Euro '92 and look at Denmark, and you know, there's always been a team who you'd think, yeah, they deserve to win it. Um, speaking from my own experience, I saw the Germany uh, Italy game at Old Trafford that we mentioned earlier um, in the, in the podcast, and it was. Uh, it was an absolute dire game. I mean, I think that the high was sending off. And on that evidence, I left Old Trafford thinking, we should walk these if we get them. Um, yeah. And obviously that was that, that didn't prove to be the case. Um, but I think if you look at the players in there, I think we've Rob's mentioned it before, Summer, absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, you look, you look at some of, the players, some of the players that went on to make a bit of an impression. It was the, um, the two ended up at Liverpool, Babel and Ziga. I mean, it wasn't a bad team. Clinton yeah. obviously we knew about him from... From Tottenham and Beer off, as you say, got his move to um to East Milan. So I don't think it was a bad team. I don't think it's probably up there with the team that, that won the World Cup a few years ago. But obviously for, for the generation that was probably the, the best it, it got for Germany. But I think I mean you look at the Czech Republic, I, I kinda of take issue with the claim that not many of them set the world on fire apart from Nedved. I mean, I don't think they really needed to. The players who, who got the moves, I think Paul, she was in a a very good United team, and and Berger had a bit of a bit of a, a flit when he um, he came to Liverpool and smashed it a little bit after that. But um, you know, a lot of teams don't need to have superstars. I think I think they work better as a cohesive unit. I think 
Czech Republic, you do feel for them, as you say, to, to let a goal in like that in extra time. It was uh, it was probably the most discerning own goal in the world, I think. Yeah. Sorry, not own goal, um, golden goal. Yeah, it was, and I quickly realised why the golden goal didn't really make sense in the end. Um, before we go, I'm just going to look at the, the team of the tournament quarter, because if you look at this team, it's insane from the players that are. There was a squad, but you know you could pick out. So the goalkeepers they had Simon and Kopka, defenders Latour of the Czech Republic, then Blanc, Desailly, Samer, and Maldini. I mean, come on, that's a ridiculous backline. Uh, midfielders are Poborski, McManaman, Gascon, and Deschamps. Again, I mean, I know Poborski, as we mentioned, didn't go on, but at the time that is some back four. And then have this for your pick of strikers: Herestos, Doiskov, Davosuka, Pavel Kuka, Alan Shearer, or Yuri Jorkaev. I mean, that's some squad um, for Euro 96. Alan Shearer was top scorer with five goals. And Matty Summer, as we mentioned earlier, was the player of the tournament. But before we go, I'm just going to go to each of them. Just your abiding memory of the tournament and how you feel the England team moved on after that. Obviously, we went into the Glenn Hoddle era. I'll start with you, Graham. What was your abiding memory of Euro 96? And how do you feel England, it affected the England team going forward? Are you asking me about England or are you asking me about Glenn Hoddle? <laughs> I will not ask a Wolves fan directly about Glenn Hoddle. So let's talk about England. Uh, I think it was ultimately a missed opportunity. Um, not 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 Euro 96 as such, but I think the the talent, particularly around France 98, that, that we had at our disposal, I think really they could have done a lot better. And I think in a way Euro 96 was... The catalyst for, for for what was going to be a very good England side that just ended up not fulfilling its potential. Obviously, um, Glenn saying what he said and um, ultimately being dismissed from his uh, dismissed from his job didn't didn't help matters because I do think that he was on he was onto something good at the time. Um, and then Kevin Keegan came in and we know what happened there. But obviously, that's digressing into the next uh, next decade. But I, I just feel that. That whole sort of three, four year period after Euro '96 was a massive missed opportunity. Um, but as far as abiding memories go, I think you summed it up perfectly in the um, in the first podcast with the whole "Call Britannia" yeah. attitude around the country, with three lions being being the anthem of the tournament and everybody seeming to be in the party mood. And there was there was just so much happening, and um, it really it really did set up a uh, what was a what was a re- really good summer in terms of not only having the football. I mean, later on, you also had the Olympics that year as well, which obviously wasn't particularly great for Great Britain at the time, but it was still another big sporting occasion. And it just made 1996 a special year for people my age in general. Yeah. Richard, do you echo those thoughts of Graham? And, and how do you feel that the tournament for England ultimately ended up for them? Well, I mean, from a personal perspective, always have that fond memory of the 4-1 fraction of Holland, because I don't think... On an international stage, I don't think we'll probably see many performances by England that are comparable with that, other than probably the five-one in Munich uh, in two thousand and one. But I just, I, I think Graham's right. I think it was a massive missed opportunity. You know, that should have been been our moment. That should have been the time where we we stepped up to the plate. And you know, it could have, it could have spawned a, a you know a golden generation like we've seen with Spain in in the past decade or so. And I think England haven't actually recovered since then. I think the, in the same way that you're, the um, 66 World Cup hung over the, the country, I think that the uh, the legacy of your 96 and everything that, that it brought with it, you know, the euphoria, the elation, uh, the anticipation, everything that came with that, I think that the English national team has struggled to replicate, uh, has been desperate to replicate, which I think is probably reflected 
um, in the choice of a homegrown manager in the past few years. Um, but I just don't think you're ever going to replicate that. I think the players at the time were they, they weren't all superstars. So let's not let's not cut the crap on that one. Um, but they were they were very competent players as a unit. They worked brilliantly. They had a few stars in there. It wasn't overblown prima donnas, and I think that's the difference between then and now. I think nowadays, I think the, the pressure and the spotlight the players are under means that those who are, I'd say, they're probably an average standard. They're probably hyped up as being better than the predecessors, and the reality was the predecessors were a lot better. Yeah, right. it's a fair point. I'll leave the last word to Rob. I think we've spoke about this usually over car- curry, my friend. Um, but if Terry Venables had possibly stayed on, would we have seen a different outcome for the England team post Euro 96 and going into France 98? Absolutely. I think that um, basically all at once the the effect of Euro 96 laid the foundations of something that could be incredibly successful. And uh, sacking Venables before the tournament had started, in effect, really knocked all of that down because... Um, Glenn Hoddle um, has been, you know, said by many to be a great coach and not a great manager. And it's interesting listening to the England players and they talk about him like a good teacher. And, you know, he he nurtured them boys and he he gave them the freedom to express themselves. And they did make mistakes. And you could argue going out and what they'd done on Cafe Pacific flight and, you know, all that went, that went on there was wrong. But he gave them the freedom to do that. It brought them together. When since has there been another England manager that's been willing to take risks, that's taken the flag, that stood up to the media, stood up to the FA? There hasn't been one and there won't be one until there's a massive shift in culture at the Football Association. And this country's football team, and do you know what? I'd love to eat my words on this, but it's doomed <laughs> to fail. It's doomed to fail while there is this culture of style over substance. And we need to... I think uh, a lot of people at the FA seem to think we need to be looking the right way. We need to be appearing as if we're doing the right thing, but we're not putting the foundations in there. We're not gelling our teams together like Terry Venables did. We're, you know, When Hoddle come in, he was the big I am. He's not looking after players. And that's, and that's continued. And you know what it's done is it's caused a disparity between the fans and the country you know, and the national football team, there's no way, this is why I say there's no way that there's going to be that euphoria of Euro 96 coming back again because there's so much ground between, you know, the footballers and the fans. It needs to come back together. We need to work together. It's not happening at the moment and I don't care what anyone says. I like Roy Hodgson and I think he's going to do a good job and we'll make a good fist of it. But as compared to Euro 96, it's nothing. What a great point to finish on as well. We could go on and on about the modern day England team in the FA, um, but we've run out of time for tonight and run out of time on the season for, for Alive and Kicking. So let me just first thank you. Thank you, Graham, for, for stepping into us tonight. Yeah, no problem at all. Enjoyed it. Richard, thank you as always. You were here for our double dose. It's great to look back at your night six. Cheers, Ash. And thank you again, Rob. Great point at the end and great always speaking to you, my friend. Cheers, pal. Take it. And we'll see you next season. For the moment, though, thank you very much for listening to Alive and Kicking. Enjoy the summer. I've been Ash Rose. Keep it 90s.